All right, so as we begin our time together here, um, I want to invite you back into a little bit of a memory of mine that um, back at UCLA, as I was going through all my classwork, as an engineering student, a lot of my coursework was laid out for me. I didn't have a lot of options to choose from. Uh, there was this one requirement that I need to have so many units of fine arts. And it just so happened that there was this much-loved class, and I got into it. And, and in fact, it was two quarters. We were on the quarter system, and it was about the development of jazz. And so you go in, and it's not about jazz hands or it's about singing or anything like that. It was going to listen. And Professor Pinckney, um, who just loved jazz himself, that he would play these albums, these songs for us uh, on the stage. There's about three or 500 people in the class. And so we'd gather and we'd listen to this music. And we found out all about New Orleans jazz and we found about swing and vocal. And, but one of the ones I remember is blues and really enjoyed the blues. Maybe if, if you're aware of blues, there's, in a number of blues songs, there's this thing that they call call and response. Call and response. That, that the singer puts out something that makes a statement, and then there's often repeated, and then there's a response given to that statement. Let me give a couple of examples. These are some of the more uh, lively or interesting uh, examples of call and response. This is from I Asked for Water by Howlin' Wolf. It goes like this. Oh, I asked her for water. Oh, she brought me gasoline. Oh, I asked her for water. Oh, she brought me gasoline. That's the troublingest woman that I've ever seen. Did you hear the call and response? He states it twice, and then there's a response to the end of it. This one's by B.B. King. Nobody loves me but my mother. Great title. It goes like this. Nobody loves me but my mother, and she could be jiving too. Call number one. Nobody loves me but my mother, and she could be jiving too. Call number two. And then the response. Now you see why I act so funny, baby, when you do the things you do. Call and response. Call and response. In our passage, we have a bit of a call and response. We'll see it. Jesus is the one who provides the call, and then the people, all of us, including us here in this room, have the opportunity to respond to what Jesus puts out there. Our text is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, and we'll be looking at verses 28 through 44. If you're participating at home, if, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible as well, we'll put it on the screen. You'll have it there. Hear the Word of God. Luke 19, 28 through 44. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to uh, Bethphage, others have pronounced it Bethphage, when he had drawn near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat untie it and bring it here if anyone asks you why are you untying it you shall say this the lord has need of it so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them and as they were untying the colt its owner said to them why are you untying the colt and they said the lord has need of it 
And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. May God bless the reading of his word. And may God shine his favor upon us as we come under his word today. Okay, our title for this message is The Return of the King. I need to admit that James Edward in his uh, commentary on the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, this is his title for this section of Scripture. Maybe you're familiar with the title from uh, The Lord of the Rings, the third volume in that trilogy. Now, some of you probably knew this already. I discovered it this past week that, that originally there were to be six volumes, and each of the volumes had a different name, and then they combined it so that there were three volumes. And J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, as he was writing this and they were deciding on titles, he argued that the title would be The War of the Ring. The War of the Ring. That the final book would be called The War of the Ring. Because he thought that the return of the king gave too much of the story away. In our text... Jesus seems finally to the point where he's no longer desiring to keep it a secret. That he wants instead the truth to be out there. For the news to be given away. For the call to be made. There was a thing, if you read through the Gospels, they, uh, scholars will refer to it as the messianic secret motif. And so if you read through the Gospels, you'll find a number of times where Jesus will use the phrase son of man. And that was a way to refer to himself without bringing too much attention that, that this all is happening according to Scripture and, and, and that he is indeed the Messiah. And it was a way of Jesus holding back a little bit, allowing some time to take place until the time was ready. In our passage, as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, Clearly, the time is ready. Maybe we can set the stage just a little bit. So, about a thousand years before the time of Jesus, during the time of King David, God made a covenant with King David. We have it in Scripture in a few different places. We're going to look at First Chronicles. It's uh, chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. And this is what God said to David, the promise God made to David through the prophet Nathan. 
goes like this, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, in other words, David, when you die, I will raise up for I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, this prophecy had an immediate uh, experience right there in the context that when David died, his son Solomon would become king. And if you know a little bit of the story of God's people, that there was a lot of intrigue that would happen, not only during Solomon's life, but after Solomon's life, with the people of God divided into two kingdoms. Eventually, the Assyrians, God would have them come and bring consequences upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And then Later, God would bring the Babylonians to bring consequences to the southern kingdom of Judah. And there was a long time when there was no king of the line of David. Closer to the time of Jesus, about 150 years or so before, there was a group called, uh, it was known as the Hasmonean dynasty. And there were, there were kings, and they were followed by the Herodians. And there were kings during that time, but they were not of the line of David. And now, here, we have Jesus in the line of David coming. Could this be it? Well, Jesus does provide the clear call. As if in a blues song, he puts it out there. He puts it out there in a number of ways. He's begging for that response. He's inviting that response. He wants that response. One of the things we see that Jesus does to put the call out there is we can see it in how he fulfills prophecies about the Messiah. In uh, the prophet Zechariah, who uh, came along after the exile of God's people, so again, uh, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, we find in uh, Zechariah chapter 14 that the Mount of Olives is identified as the place where where the one who is promised will be, be arriving from. Like, this is a significant piece of geography. And so even the location that Jesus is choosing to, to, to make this known is, is lined up with what had been told in Scripture. In Zechariah 9.9, we find out about the choosing of, of the donkey. I, this is the text that Nathan used at the beginning of the service. It goes like this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here, Jesus, the, the geography, uh, and, and, and he's living into this prophecy. And, and here, the, the choosing of the colt or the colt being used, the, this donkey that he's going to ride on, it lines up with Scripture. This is the one. The king has arrived. But we also see Jesus putting the call forward in his own prophetic knowledge. There's some discussion as to whether Jesus maybe had prearranged the, uh, the, the position of the donkey, the colt, and, and that was all laid up ahead of time and um, 
yet it seems that given the context of the story that we have and the way it's laid out for us, that, that here we have Jesus speaking with that prophetic voice. Not that he had arranged it, but that, that he knows what's going to happen. We're going to find it in the story of Jesus throughout the coming week, that last week of Jesus' life where he knows the next thing. He knows what's coming up. He's not unaware of what reality holds for him. And so he states with prophetic knowledge, and you, we heard it read, let's, let's visit it again. He says to his followers, he calls two of them aside, he says, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, just like Jesus said, the owners uh, said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Jesus lives into these prophecies. And then Jesus is the one who says, here's what's going to happen. We find that the additional piece, this, and again, Edwards in his commentary, that the commandeering of a, beast of, burden, of a beast of burden was the prerogative of a king. Jesus making it clear, I am the king you have been waiting for. There's Jesus. In fact, put yourself right there. You're on the side of this 300-foot-high kind of uh, mountain or hill or next to Jerusalem, and coming down the face of that hill, that mountain, that he's coming toward Jerusalem, and you see him, he's riding on a donkey. It's happening. It's taking place. You know, we might provide the old duck test. If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, probably a duck. And here, if it looks like the prophecies are being fulfilled, and there's Jesus riding on a colt and making his way into Jerusalem, it's happening. But not only do we have this, Jesus gives more information, more of the call comes out. He also shows us the kind of king he's, he is. You know, in some of the magazines that come out, whether it's a women's magazine or a men's magazine, in fact, this stuff that I found was on menshealth.com. And it's one of those things where they look at survey data and they pull together correlations. And these are just correlations. This one has to do with what does your ride say about you? What does the car you drive say about you? Now, if you happen to drive an Audi, this is according to the people that they surveyed. And they took some other survey. And again, this is just correlative data. Uh, here's what, if you happen to drive an Audi, you're a millennial. So if you're in your 60s and you're driving an Audi, you just lost a bunch of years. That's awesome. You're a millennial. You live in a city, most likely one of the coasts, and you're a Democrat. That may be news to some of you. You work in consulting or advertising, and you really like Coldplay, Rihanna, and potato leek soup. I know even now some of you who drive Audis are going to stop by the grocery store on the way home and go, potato leek soup, that sounds pretty good. Conversely, if you drive a Ford, now again, this is 
correlation uh, information. So this is what they say about if you drive a Ford. You love football and beef jerky and pumpkin pie, and you don't care much about, here's one of those backhanded compliments, uh, and you don't care much about, quote, looking young or, quote, feeling attractive. Um, I want to assure that whatever car you drive, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? So um, uh, you turn up the radio for Toby Keith and Van Halen, and you like getting your hands dirty gardening or fishing. What does your ride say about you? Well, for Jesus, his ride was not about correlations. It was about intention. Jesus chooses the foal of a donkey. Because as a king would come in as a donkey, on a donkey, that he's making the statement that I am here for peace. I am the king who brings peace. If the statement was to be about power, and by the way, the next return of the king will be about power. We're already told that even in the Gospel of Luke, that when Jesus returns again, he will come in power. But as he makes this journey into Jerusalem, he declares peace. Then further in the passage, we find the image of Jesus weeping. He, he comes down the hill, and we, we, we find in the verses, verses 41 and following, that, that Jesus looks upon the city, and, and, and he weeps because the information about him, who he is, his identity is hidden from them, that they're missing this moment of his visitation, this king who weeps. The word even can mean sobs. This gentle, this lowly king who comes and weeps for his people. It so aligns with what even Jesus himself, we find it in some words that we've shared in this room many times. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus making the call. The king has arrived. The king of peace. The king who weeps. I am indeed king. We see it in his actions. He's communicating. I am indeed king. In fact, I am the king of grace and forgiveness and love. There's a reference in here to the mighty works that Jesus has done, and we can remember some of those works. How about the time when he was on his way to go and heal someone, and the, a daughter of someone, and, and in the midst of a crowd, there was that woman who had been bleeding for many years, and she reaches out and just touches the hem of his robe, and power goes out from him, and she is healed, and he turns doesn't chastise her, but embraces and, and blesses her and shines grace upon her and then continues on to go and do the work elsewhere. Or how he would reach out and touch a leper and bring healing, how he, he would heal those around him and welcome, even eating with sinners. This is Jesus' clear call. The gentle, the lowly king. All right, so the call is given and it's intended to evoke a response. In the passage, we happen to find three responses. 
And even as we look at these responses of the people given in this story, we can think about our own response on this day. We come first to the faithful followers. The faithful followers. We find them in uh, chapter 19. If we take a look beginning in verse uh, um, uh, 37, where we read, And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These are the ones who are willing to stand up right then and there and acknowledge this is our King. It is happening. And they rejoice in His presence. You know, an example of this today might be, I don't know if, I've never been to a, a national political convention. You know, the ones that happen during the uh, year that a president's being elected? But I've watched a little bit of them on television. And there are these people that go to these national political conventions that dress up like they've got all kinds of, they just look like you're really into this, aren't you? You know, like they'll wear red, white, and blue and funny hats and, and make all kinds of different statements. And they're really into their political party. You get the sense that in this multitude of disciples, they are really into Jesus. Jesus, you're the one. It's happening now. And they're willing to stand up and be noted for believing that. They identify with Jesus without reservation. Without reservation. Then we come along and we find these fair-weather fans. Maybe we could call them guardrail factions. We find it in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So here we have these Pharisees, this, this, leader, this set of leaders that, that were uh, in the communities and had much sway in the communities. And they really focused their attention on what God had revealed in his law. And, and here they're saying, Jesus, hey, we need to put some guardrails on this. They're making statements here we're not comfortable with. And we shouldn't be outside of these guardrails. We could also call these maybe cultural Christians that are not Christians, but cultural folks. That We've got this culture around us, and, and we need to stay within this God-revealed culture or within whatever culture we have, guardrail. We want you, Jesus, to stay within these guardrails. Then we find this third group. We might call them the faithless foes. They're talked about, again, in that passage of Luke 19, verses 41 and following, the people in the city who are missing the visitation, not knowing, not engaging with, not buying into the fact that the king has arrived. This week, on Wednesday, we'll gather for that Seder meal. We'll look to the meaning of the Passover and how God moved at the time of Moses. We'll, make, we'll work toward that understanding of, of what Jesus had about the meal as he came and he gathered with his followers on the night that he was betrayed. We'll move on to Monday, Thursday, where we'll, we'll again engage the command that Jesus gave to love one another 
and we'll celebrate communion again on that night. We'll gather for Good Friday and, and recall what Jesus did in his receiving, choosing to accept the suffering and to die on the cross. And then on Easter morning, we'll gather to celebrate the fact that the tomb was empty. And all the way along, every time we gather together, we will remember the call that Jesus has put forward. Each of these experiences put forward the call of who Jesus is. And what will be our response? What will be our response? Will we be like the faithless foes, the people in the city who are just busy about their day and and don't really have much room for this in their life, that that they're missing the moment? Will we be the people who miss the moment? Will we be like the Pharisees in our story where we have set guardrails on Jesus and go, Jesus, as long as you just stay my Savior, I'm good with you. But if you really try to be my king, I don't know if I can accept you. Or Jesus, you know what, you can have Sunday, but I want the rest of the days. They're for me. Or Jesus, you can have my family relationships, or, or maybe I might be more kind, but I don't want you to be in charge of my money. Maybe we put guardrails and go, Jesus, I can only accept you the way I want to manage you. Or will we be like those faithful followers who step up and say, I'm in. I see you for who you are, Jesus. And I'm so grateful you've come into this world. And you indeed are my king. And you have full reign over my life. I thought this morning that we would have this opportunity that like the faithful followers of that day as Jesus made his way down the Mount of Olives, that we too could share in the same words that they shared and be a part of that proclamation. And it may be that some of us in this room aren't ready to do that, and that's, that's okay, I'm so glad you're here. But for those who, whose hearts are in that position, that we would have that opportunity this morning to join with those other faithful followers and declare the good news and respond to what Jesus has made clear and put forward. Would you join me? We're going to put the words up here. And I invite you to join with me. Let's share these words. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If you're willing, let's do it again. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. One more time. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amen and amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that indeed, in time, after promising for so many centuries that you would send the Messiah into this world, that the Messiah did arrive, much more than we ever thought that the Messiah might be, that fully God, fully human, this divine human being, Jesus, that he made his identity clear, that he's put the call out to each one of us, and that by your grace you have made it possible that we would respond. 
Hosanna. Hosanna. God saves. Glory to God in the highest. For Christ has come. God, help us, each one of us. If we've set guardrails on you, would you forgive us? Through the power of your spirit, would you help us to to identify the guardrails that we've put on Christ in our lives? Confront us wherever we've managed our faith toward our comfort. Release us from that, that we, in all faith, and in all faithfulness, respond to who Christ is with total devotion and openness to his reign as our king. God, we give you thanks. And we pray this in his name, in Christ's name. And we say, amen.